Audio Conversation with Daryl Anka, recorded February 15th, 2012. Now, one of the more contentious issues that uh, gets associated with the uh, UFO abduction phenomena is people who claim to channel. This gets dismissed with outright contempt by many within the uh, the, the research community. Um, I find that really curious because it's it's an overt pattern. It's something you see over and over again. People who claim the direct contact experience will follow that up by saying, uh, since that event, I have begun channeling. And now this is something that comes up over and over again. I have been looking into this. I find, for reasons I don't understand, that I have been drawn to channeled material. I went through a period in the late 90s where I read one channeled book after another, after another, after another. Uh, I found much of the information in those books really profound, and some of it quite helpful. And I I would point to Neil Donald Walsh's uh, first three books as something that uh, I can recommend highly. And ever since then, ever since that uh, immersion into that channeled material, I have been very open and very receptive to people who claim that they have that ability, the ability to channel from from the great beyond, wherever that might be, whatever the source might be. Now, Daryl Anka channels an entity that he refers to as Bashar. And I've looked into his work, and the content of what Bashar says and imparts, and I find that the information, the content, is is really remarkable. It is quite good, it is very thought-provoking, and it is, on a very deep level, very beautiful. Now, in my opinion, there is sort of a hit and miss among the uh, people involved in channeling, in that community of channelers. Uh, What I can say is that Daryl Anka is one of the really good ones. Uh, the information that comes through him is just great. It's just great. I'll, I'll include a few links on the show notes. Now, early on in this little intro for Daryl, I, I may have uh, insinuated that he had uh, been at the receiving end of some sort of abduction event. Uh, we talk about this a little bit during the interview, and he says, no, that that is not what happened to him, though he did see on two separate occasions, very close up, a triangle-shaped craft, and this would have been in 1973, when he was 22 years old. Th- those events do play a pivotal role in his, I almost want to say, in his initiation to to his present role now as uh, the voice of Bashar, and we talk about that um, during this conversation. Now, this this stuff that we're going to be digging into certainly has the flavor of kooky, new-age, flighty woo-woo, and I recognize that completely as I, as I uh, step into this interview. And uh, one of the things I was absolutely uh, delighted by is Daryl is extremely soft-spoken, and very straightforward, and doesn't have, oh, how should I say it, any of the trappings that one might find in among the, the New Age community. And uh, that that little subpopulation of seekers is uh, kind of an easy target for parody. Uh, that said, um, you know, he certainly, in his voice and in his demeanor, does not come across that way, and I was, I was, I was actually quite relieved by that. 
Now, all that said, I had a perfectly delightful time talking with him, and uh, I was really impressed with some of the very, very straightforward answers he gave to a lot of the questions. Um, now, I don't quite know whether his answers are literal truth or metaphoric or what, but, but the answers all had the ring of truth to them, uh, even if on a grand sort of uh, metaphysical level. Oh, and one more thing before I roll into the conversation. I did something that I very rarely do. I did not edit this conversation at all. So you will get to hear uh, some of my mumbling and stammering, uh, which oftentimes I'll snip out when I do the editing process. You get to hear it all here. And um, you will also get to hear uh, Daryl Anka's very strong, clear voice, giving what I considered very, very thoughtful answers to, to questions that have been on my mind for a long time. And I found his insights uh, really helpful in a lot of ways um, as I proceed forward. One of the things we do talk about a lot in this is synchronicity, which uh, if anyone who listens to this podcast series knows that I am taking very seriously and am wrestling with as far as what a definition would be for synchronistic events. Um, and, and this is where I thought he really shined. The interview is about an hour and 25 minutes long, and I thought the content was really remarkable. Please enjoy. Uh, Daryl, I just want to say thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me. The reason I contacted you and reached out to you was because um, of my own set of experiences with, uh, I will just say, odd life phenomena. And one of the things I have seen in my research into the UFO phenomena is that people who claim the direct contact experience will often say that they have started to channel. And, and that's how I found you, and that's how um, I reached out to you, is that connection between the channeling and the UFO phenomena. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people who have had various kinds of sightings or contact uh, with UFOs um, do find that their consciousness expands and opens up in a variety of ways after that experience and uh, channeling is certainly one of the ways that seems to be common in terms of expressing that uh, expansion or that connection that they feel uh, after that experience. Um, I talked to Kim Carlsberg at one point, and she mm -hmm. gave what I thought was a good definition or a good way to frame it in my mind is that um, once you're opened, you're opened up to everything. Yeah, well, channeling, I think, you know, most people have a little bit of a um, <clears throat> misunderstanding. Channeling is really a very natural state, and, and everyone can do it. And, and I think from time to time, everyone does do it. It's really just sort of getting into that focused state where you're doing what you love to do or you're focused on something to the point where, you know, you're not paying attention to the passage of time. Uh, you're really flowing uh, energy and information, creativity through you. You know, an actor that becomes the character, a singer that's lost in the song, in a sense, is channeling. But I think that people are starting to discover that when you're in that state, that natural altered state, you can access not only other aspects of your own consciousness that you might not on a day-to-day -day basis typically access, but that it's also possible to make connections with other levels, other dimensions, other entities, uh, expressing consciousness in a different way as well. If you just train 
yourself to focus uh, in that direction. Now, your, I, I guess the, the the entity, the guide that you work with, is named Bashar. Uh, yeah, it's not literally his name. Um, when the telepathic connection first happened, uh, that word was there, and I actually assumed it was his name. But as he's explained over the years, in their society, they're telepathic. They don't really need names, but he knew we needed to call him something. And it's actually an Arabic word, which I don't speak Arabic, but I am partly Arabic uh, in my background. So I guess the word somehow was chosen by him uh, to be used as a name. But it was actually several years later that somebody came up to me and and told me that it was actually an Arabic word. I had no clue. And he said that the word means messenger or bringer of good news. So obviously, even though it's not literally his name, it is representative of what Bashar is doing. And and Bashar as a, as a how do I, I want to be careful how to say this as a character has a very intense personality. <clears throat> yeah, he's very direct. Uh, I mean, he's very humorous and very compassionate, but he doesn't beat around the bush. He's very blunt. He's very direct. He wants people to to understand things very clearly. He explains things in a very grounded, down to earth way. No pun intended. And uh, he wants people to walk away understanding some of these new age and metaphysical concepts in a, in kind of a, a very grounded practical method that can be applied in physical reality and from which a result can actually be experienced. Well, let, let, I would love to hear um, your, I know you have had uh, mm-hmm. close UFO encounters and I would love to hear about those. And I'm just, I'm interested to in how those integrate with your with what's happening with you today. Yeah, um, uh, about 10 years before I began to channel, which is, uh, so that would be about 38 years ago now, I actually had two very, very close broad daylight UFO sightings um, with witnesses with me both times. Uh, The first time about 150 feet away and the second time only about 70 feet away. So both of them were quite startling. Uh, A real solid uh, triangular black craft uh, one blue light on each point and kind of a dull reddish-orange light underneath in the center. Um, but since we all saw this thing very solidly for at least a good 30, 40 seconds um, before it went away at, at incredible speed, um, you know, I began doing a lot of research after I saw something like that because, you know, I'd always I'd heard stories of UFOs and... <clears throat> You know, I believed, okay, maybe something like that could be possible. But once you actually physically see something like that, I mean, it just completely changes everything in your world. And so I really wanted to understand what was going on. I started reading books, doing research. And over that 10 years, uh, one book kind of led to another in the same sort of metaphysical category. And I began doing, you know, reading of psychic phenomenon, researching channeling, and especially like the Seth material and so on and so forth. And eventually, I was introduced to a channel who was conducting seminars at the time, 10 years after the sighting. And I, I went to listen to some of those seminars, and I thought the information was was interesting and helpful. But eventually, the entity coming through that channel actually offered to teach channeling through a class. And I thought, okay, well, <clears throat> I didn't necessarily think I was going to become a channel. I just wanted to understand how do you teach something like that? I didn't realize that it could be taught. I thought it just sort of happened to you. 
So I went into the class to further my research, and it was about a 12-week course and contained all sorts of different guided meditations to put you in touch with whatever you wanted to, to access, more creativity, your own higher self, other aspects of your consciousness. But about halfway through the course, um, <clears throat> when I was in a meditative state, I received what I had mentioned before, uh, what I experienced to be a telepathic contact. And in that one split second, an actual memory came back of having made an agreement with Bashar to do this before this life. <clears throat> I understood in that second that the UFO was his and had been shown to me on purpose to get me to start learning the things I needed to learn. And the rest of the message was, okay, now that you remember you made the agreement and now you, that you know it's time to begin and that you're prepared to begin, is it something you still want to do? I had to think about this for a while because I didn't know if I was hallucinating or what was going on in my imagination. Ooh, ooh, let but, me just, let me, so, so yeah. in one split second, you had uh, an experience, a, a, a memory yes. um, that uh, has <clears throat> since, uh, I don't want to say has since changed your life, has dominated the direction of your present life. Yes, absolutely. And when you said you had to think for a while, was that five minutes or a year? Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I was, this is after the fact. I mean, I knew something was going on. and But in that single moment, you know, for the few seconds afterwards, I was wondering if this was my imagination or a hallucination or a side effect of the meditation. But within a few seconds, while this was going on in, in my head, the uh, entity coming through the channel who was teaching the class actually stopped talking and turned to me and actually said, someone is here for you if you're ready to begin. So they picked up on it. And at the same time, someone else in the class was actually drawing an outline of an entity that I was seeing in my head. So I immediately got validation that something real was happening, but <clears throat> I didn't really know what to make of it or what to do with it. But uh, since I was offered the opportunity to practice this in the class, I decided, all right, well, I understand that channeled information is something that can help people. It can give us a different perspective. So I said, all right, you know, <clears throat> I'll go ahead. I'll see where this leads. And I continued to practice channeling in the class. Um, after the class was over, uh, a woman who was doing one of the first doctoral thesis papers on the connection between channeling and psychology actually asked me to be one of her subjects to study for her paper. And, and as, as a result of that, <clears throat> I began doing channelings in her living room to her friends so she could observe me and write her paper and make notes. But that turned into one night a week, then it turned into two nights a week, then it was like, you know, five friends the first time, ten friends the second week, twenty friends the third week. And just by word of mouth, it started to spread until we had to do it several times a week. And then people were making recordings of this and sending them to their friends in different cities, different countries. And I started getting invited to all these different cities and countries to come and channel. And it just basically spread by word of mouth. And here I am 28 years later still doing this. So I want to turn the clock back. So I just did the math here. Was it 1974 when you had your event? Um, 73. Okay, okay. Because I went into the class in 83, but I didn't start publicly channeling till 84. Now, um, how old were you in 1973? Oh, let's see. I think I was about 22 or 23. Okay. Um, and now this is a question I ask everyone, and I've been doing my own uh, UFO research. Do you remember, like, what you were thinking, what preceded actually seeing the, the, that triangular craft? 
I was driving um, in a car with, like I said, uh, I had um, a friend with me and her brother and my brother and sister in the back seat. And we were driving. I don't, I don't know. You know, people are familiar with Los Angeles, but we were driving on the San Diego freeway back down into the San Fernando Valley where um, I still live. <clears throat> and as you come down this grade, you have a clear shot of the entire valley below you for a good 30 seconds. And I noticed that there were these two lights, bright lights hovering above this uh, about a 12-story hotel down at the bottom of the freeway junction. And I thought, okay, there's this small plane that's flying there or a helicopter. Something's hovering over the hotel. But as I kept driving, because my eyes were you know, facing forward, I was getting a, a good solid look at this thing. And eventually I realized, you know, this thing is not moving. I don't know what this is. But I started calling everyone else's attention to it. And as we got closer, we could clearly see that this was some sort of absolutely motionless triangular ship hovering above and out in front of this hotel. And as we passed it, uh, it, it moved <clears throat> from one side of the freeway to the other because we were connecting uh, to um, another freeway. It was, a, it was an interchange. And so it was on my left side when I first saw it. And as I came around the interchange, it moved to be on my left side again. So I always had the ability to look out my driver's side window to see this thing. And it just took off straight over the valley, uh, just in a straight line, like it was moving on glass. It was just the, the most bizarre kind of motion, without a sound whatsoever. And so we all started, you know, being very excited. We were talking about this and wondering, you know, what was going on, having seen something like that. Literally within the next week, I was driving in West Los Angeles uh, with the same friend who was sitting in the passenger seat, <clears throat> uh, and we saw this thing again crossing over a major intersection. And I just I just hung a hard right and started following this thing into a residential neighborhood. And <clears throat> there's a lot of trees there, so I couldn't see it very clearly. So my friend was hanging out the window riding shotgun and and telling me it's you know it's it's zigzagging left, turn left, it's going right, turn right. So I just kind of zigzagged through the neighborhood until we kind of lost it, uh, not being able to see it above the trees. And just on a, on a hunch, I just made a hard right down this one uh, street, and she just said, stop. She's, and we stopped. We looked out the window. This thing was hovering about 70 feet above us. And within like a second, it just took off like a shot straight up. And we got out of the car. We looked around. There was absolutely no one else in the neighborhood outside. And so we just kind of like looked at each other and go, what is going on? Because this is like twice in the span of a week that we saw at least what appeared to be a similar craft, if not exactly the same craft. Um, so that's kind of how it happened for us, and uh, we didn't really know what to think at that point. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. This is, uh, so um, now, did you feel at the time like a direct connection with this? or No, I, I just felt sort of stunned and sort of a little bit, uh, it was very surreal, uh, because even in the first uh, instance, when we were driving on the freeway, when I was looking at this thing, I, I actually took a moment to look around at other cars, other drivers, and see if anyone else was looking up. And no one else in any other car seemed to be paying attention to this thing whatsoever. So that was kind of a very sort of bizarre thing to all of us. And, and again, in the second encounter, 
when we stopped the car, there was absolutely no one around, which is also very unusual. So it, it had this sort of very surreal sense of being in, a, in another reality, kind of in an isolated uh, sort of reality when this was going on. But aside from that sort of bizarre sense of being surreal, I didn't really feel any particular kind of connection, except for the fact that I became very driven to uh, research UFOs and find out you know, what everything I could find out. So maybe the drive itself was in some sense part of, you know, the connection or the contact. Yes. And, uh, you know, what you're describing as far as you in the occupancy of your car being the only folks to notice it and, and people around you not noticing it, that, that is, um, that shows up all the time in the literature, you know, so yes, what you're does. describing is not unusual <clears throat> yeah. in, in this, uh, you know, given the circumstances. Um, now, here's a question you may have asked yourself. Was there any sort of missing time associated with these events? No, not that I'm aware of. These happened, as far as I could tell, in real time. Okay. Um, and then, um, do you have any sense that you had been uh, contacted in a way that might fall into the role of experiencer or fall into the role of, like, abductee? No, because I've actually, since that time, I've actually had uh, dream encounters with Bashar where we just have conversations. But the friend of mine who also was in the car with me also had a very unusual dream encounter with some what seemed to be extraterrestrial beings. And she and I, I thank God that she asked this question. She actually had the presence of mind to ask uh, in that dream uh, about the question of, uh, you know, contact or abduction or whatever you want to call it. And um, you had mentioned a, a friend of mine earlier who I know is an experiencer, Kim Carlsberg. And so this friend of mine, her name was Tracy, actually in the dream asked, is Kim uh, having the experiences that she's saying she's having? And the beings in the dream told her yes. And then Tracy said, what about me and what about Daryl? And the answer the beings gave her was, no, we're through with your family lines. So that, to me, means that somewhere in the past, some of that kind of interaction or perhaps DNA alteration or whatever it is they were doing was conducted in, in each of our family lineages, but that, for some reason, our family lineages were done as part of their agenda. And so at this point, uh, that was not something that we were experiencing. We were now experiencing something very different, which I guess has to do with the channeling. This is fascinating. This is just fascinating. Now, you had a similar dream where you interacted with these entities? I've had four very strong interactions in dream states, specifically with Bashar. And when I have those kinds of interactions, they are not like any other kind of dream. It's literally like having a conversation with someone where you're, you're sitting down and talking with them for the duration of the dream and nothing else is going on. Uh, one time it took place inside of his ship. Uh, another time took place outside where I saw a ship land and he gets out <clears throat> and another took place where it's like we're just sitting in some kind of a space, uh, nondescript space in two chairs talking with each other. It's just very straightforward conversations when I have encounters with him in dream time. And did you make an effort to like record or document in a diary format those those interactions? Um, not, uh, yes. I mean, I've, I've written them down for myself. Uh, I, I haven't really recorded them, uh, strongly anywhere else, but I have, uh, discussed them or described them to, to people, uh, over the course of time. And what did he look like? 
Oh, he's described himself many times, and certainly when I channel him, I, I can see exactly what he looks like. They describe themselves as hybrid beings. Uh, they describe themselves actually as the result of uh, those, um, you know, interactions where people have reported um, seeing uh, the greys, uh, as they're called, um, extract DNA and and seemingly creating uh, children, hybrid beings between the humans and the greys. Um, and he, Bashar, has actually described himself as one of those one of those hybrids. And they describe themselves as approximately five feet tall. Their skin is very pale, very, very white. Uh, their head is slightly larger than ours, not extremely so. Their eyes are larger than ours. Nose, mouth, and ears seem to be a little bit smaller. They're very slender, uh, appearing maybe almost frail to us. Um, uh, but, um, you know, generally that's, and then the males have no hair. The females, he say, do, but it tends to be white, although there are exceptions. Um, but that's uh, pretty much what he's described his society uh, to look like. This is fascinating. Um, as I go into this research and do this research, one of the things I find over and over and over again is people who claim the direct contact experience or the abduction experience mm-hmm. will um, say, oh, you know, like, oh, you know, when they list the things that have been the result of their experience, they'll say, oh, and mm-hmm. then I started to channel. Um, right. And... I have uh, been interacting with a lot of researchers, and I will. I have to say that these researchers uh, put on their hat that says that they are very open-minded and mm-hmm. that they are very scientific. And then when they get to the channeling aspect of it, they are they dismiss it with such contempt. And I, I and and it's it's one of these things where it's like, well, wait a minute. Here I I've just been doing this for a couple of years, and and it's a pattern. You know, it is a very yeah. real pattern. And, it uh, is. It is. And I, I think that, I think part of the difficulty for them is, is, like I said sort of initially, is most people don't understand what channeling actually is. And I think that people have a lot of erroneous definitions of it that uh, make it difficult for them to accept as a phenomenon. Uh, you know, it, it sometimes for people falls into the category of things like possession and, and stuff like that. And nothing could be further from the truth. It, to me, it actually has a very scientific basis to it. It's really just all about resonance. Um, when I am channeling, uh, it's just that my brain waves are going into an altered state. They attain a different frequency, and they raise to a different pitch. Bashar is doing the same thing on his end. And somewhere in the middle, our frequencies lock and it becomes like two tuning forks, where if two tuning forks are sort of keyed to each other, um, then when you start one vibrating, the other one will vibrate in, in sympathetic harmony. And so you're kind of getting a translation out of Bashar's thoughts, a translation in my energy out of my language that I was raised to understand. But he's not in my body. He's not speaking our language. In a sense, it's really very similar to a telephone. <clears throat> you know that the voice that you're hearing on your end is not the original acoustic voice. It's been translated into electronic signals and turned back into an acoustic sound at your end. This is, in some senses, exactly what I think is going on with channeling, is that people are getting into a resonant frequency where they become frequency matched. They become harmonically matched to another entity's consciousness. And when you do that, 
you create a model of their consciousness out of your own energy and can, in a sense, act as a biological translation device. So I think there's actually quite a lot of scientific basis for how channeling can actually function, but I think most people don't understand that because they equate it to other things that are kind of more steeped in mythology or folklore. Um, now, could uh, you know, like I've met with a bunch of channels and talked to people who, who claim that uh, they channel. I've sat through some channeled sessions, and mm-hmm. my, um, you know, what I've come away with is that there are some good ones. There's some very good ones, mm-hmm. and then there are some that uh, the only way I can describe it is perhaps uh, the, their radio is faulty. You know, they're actually yeah. Or, well, it's like it's per- like anything. You know, there's there's people who are, are well practiced at it, and there are people who kind of haven't quite gotten the hang of it, and and there are people, like I said, who also have, I think, a misunderstanding of what it is, and that can actually color the, uh, let's just say, the efficiency with which they can allow that to happen. So sometimes you get, you know, like like a like you say, like a, you know, like a faulty radio, you'll you'll get uh, resistance, you'll get interference, <clears throat> you'll get misinterpretation. Uh, you'll get people uh, thinking that they're channeling other entities when, in fact, they may simply be tapping in, you know, to aspects of their own consciousness, either positive or negative. Um, you know, it, I really, because, because it's difficult to tell, I really usually just go by uh, the nature of the information in terms of, of how uh, effective or relevant or positive or constructive or self-empowering it is, as opposed to, you know, how, let's say, uh, either controlling or fear-based it is. So to me, the, you know, the rule of thumb is, is really, you know, is this a positive, constructive, self-empowering source of information, or is it a, uh, a fear-based sort of dominating, you know, kind of approach? And I just take it on face value in terms of the information, regardless of what's happening within the channel themselves. Now, here's a totally pragmatic question that I, that always has. Why do some channels talk in sort of a funny voice? They sort of put on a little funny <laughs> accent. I think there are several reasons for that. And in my experience, one of those reasons may be that, uh, well, first of all, the way the energy flow and the way the thought forms come from another level, from another it, it, it kind of fluctuates and flows in a very kind of odd sort of pattern. And sometimes that odd pattern puts different stresses on the translation that are unusual for our language. And so it makes it sound like a foreign language. It makes it sound like it has an accent. Just because the way the energy patterns are flowing, they put these kind of strange and unusual uh stress patterns on on the way the the translation happens at the same time i also think part of it may be that our brains are interpreting these other entities as being foreign and therefore it might just automatically assign what to us sounds like a foreign accent in order for the brain to interpret what's coming through it in a way that makes sense uh, according to what we've been taught to think of as a foreign consciousness. So, and there may be other reasons for it, but I, I think it mostly has to do with the idea that some of this information gets translated through the body almost more like music than like language. And so there are just unusual uh, stresses, unusual kinds of tonalities that come through that can, to our ears, sound like a foreign accent. Um, I... Uh this is the, so. Just I'm going to apologize in advance if this question sounds odd, but um, uh, there, 
I just can't help but think. Now, I've actually seen people make fun of channeling on mm -hmm. uh, websites. Sure. And one of the things they will do in order to, like, you know, point a finger and go, ha, 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 is to uh, post a YouTube video of you channeling Bashar. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that... Um, Initially, if you just click on this thing and all of a sudden you're watching, um, you know, you sitting sure. in front of a small audience with mm -hmm. that loud, booming, uh, mm -hmm. staccato voice, mm -hmm. uh, it does come across as somewhat uh, absurd. And yes, it does. And I thought that myself when I first saw myself uh, on video. But, you know, <clears throat> uh, I, I realized that, look, if that's the way the energy has to come through to express itself, then that's the way it comes through. And it really doesn't matter what anyone thinks, because what's more important is to simply allow it to come through in whatever is the best possible way to deliver the information that people need. And the feedback that I get over the past 28 years from at least 99.9% .9 of the people is that when they do apply the information that Bashar gives them to their lives, their lives inevitably turn out better. And to me, that's the bottom line. So I really don't care ultimately how I look. I know what effect the information is having on people. It's empowering them. It's positive. It's getting them to experience more joy in their lives. And to me, that's what counts. And if I have to sort of look a little silly in order for that to happen, well, then that's what happens. I almost feel like that that uh, looking a little silly is almost like a, an initial hurdle that someone needs to to get over. They have to abandon yes. uh, a, a logical side of their of their, you know, present day psyche you know, to get over that hurdle. And they then... certainly yeah, they certainly have to abandon the concept of being self conscious. Yes, and just listening to your voice now, and I've definitely heard you, you as uh, as Daryl Anka speak. Mm -hmm. um, you are, you know, uh, perfectly capable of sounding uh, calm and rational and and even keeled. Oh, sure. And if you were to be hoaxing this, uh, I, I would have to assume that you would not, uh, you know, use the the loud, silly voice. No, I mean, you know, it's it's again. I think it's just the way our bodies react to that energy and the motions that our bodies go through are also in some ways interpreting other levels of the communication that are not coming through in an auditory fashion. So, yeah, you know, you kind of wind up looking sort of like a puppet or a mime. But I think that there's actually purpose to all that in a lot of ways. But the bottom line I've simply, like I said, I've found is that whatever the vibrational energy is that's coming through, when you see this thing, when you see a channeling live, it does make an impact on people. It actually does immerse them in some other kind of vibration. And and it just doesn't matter what you look like. And maybe, again, like you say, that's that's actually kind of maybe part of the point. It, it, it sort of demonstrates that, look, you know, no one in their right mind would do this if they didn't have to do it this way. Uh, you know, there must be some reason why it's presenting itself this way. And so I just have to let it be what it is. It's If I try to stop it, if I try to regulate it, I know that the information won't come through as clearly, won't come through as smoothly, and it won't have the same benefit for people. So I just have to give up the whole concept of, of how it looks, and I just have to focus on the fact that whatever's coming through is what needs to come through, and that's the way it has to happen. Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, having followed your information, uh, Bashar is actually you uh, in a in a you know off in the future somewhere. I think I have found that in most cases of people that channel what what present themselves as other entities, there is almost always some kind of a soul connection between the channel and the entity. In other words. <clears throat> 
you know, if you look at the idea linearly, you could say, yes, Bashar is a future incarnation and I'm one of his past incarnations. So in essence, we're the same soul. But as Bashar has explained it, and as I think now quantum physics is also beginning to discover uh, or has discovered or proposed, um, time, in a sense, is an illusion. There really isn't a past, present, and future per se. All different timelines exist at the same time, in much the same way that different frames on a film strip, even though they may represent different times in the movie, all exist all at once on the film strip. So because everything actually exists all at once... Uh, mechanically speaking, even though we may experience it differently from a linear third-dimensional perspective, uh, that creates the possibility and creates the opportunity for another version of my soul, if you will, to be capable of actually connecting with uh, a past self, quote-unquote, because the future self and the past self actually simultaneously coexist. And if the future self has understood how to make that connection, then such connections can be made. Um, how are your, you know, you, Daryl, how, how are your psychic skills? Well, I think they have increased somewhat in doing the channeling. Um, I find that uh, I'm able to sort of pick up on things a little bit more clearly, more intuitively. Um, there's more synchronicity in my life. And by the way, I think actually synchronicity actually has a lot to do with the idea of psychic functioning. Again, I think that a lot of people have a different idea or a different definition of what psychic functioning actually is than what the mechanical truth is or the vibrational reality is of, of that particular experience. But I think it has a lot to do with synchronicity and uh, making a connection to the fact that things exist uh, on different vibratory levels and just keying into those frequencies and becoming sensitive to interpreting those frequencies. So definitely doing the channeling for 28 years has made me more sensitive to those things. And I will very often kind of pick up on things that, that I never picked up on before. Now, the, the, so my website um, is about um, UFOs mm -hmm. uh, and synchronicities. Um, mm -hmm. And I, this is something... How synchronous. Yeah, so I, that's your, I've got a little checklist of questions and you mm -hmm. jumped ahead, so I want to I follow this up. Um, I have spoken about this a lot and written about this a lot on my, on my um, website. Mm -hmm. I um, have some events in my life that certainly point to what might be uh, UFO abduction events. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm very cautious to to label them as such, be, just because I simply don't have that direct memory. Uh, right. If if I put the puzzle pieces together, there's a little blank spot in the puzzle, and it is very easy to infer what might be in that blank spot. But mm -hmm. until I know for certain, I'm I'm just I'm just cautious to to make sure. that leap. And I think that's wise. What has happened? since I have started looking into this is that my personal synchronicities have uh, gone off the charts. I right. am experiencing things that uh, on one level I feel very safe calling it magic. I, I feel mm -hmm. like something has intersected with my life uh, that that seems a direct result of my doing self-research on the UFO phenomena. Yeah, I, I, it is showing yeah. up in the forms of synchronicity. And why yeah. is that happening? Well, I, I was going to say, I think synchronicity is one of the symptoms of expanding consciousness. Because synchronicity, at least from Bashar's perspective, and of course now I share the same perspective with him, synchronicity is 
linear space-time's way of doing the best it can to actually show you that everything is connected and everything is one thing. But it can only do that in a space-time sort of fashion. And so synchronicity, when events seem to sort of come together at exactly the right place, the right time, with a certain kind of meaning that seems very specific for you, I think it's demonstrating that your frequency is accelerating and raising to the point where you're starting to really become harmoniously aligned with the higher vibration level at which your consciousness can clearly see and more readily perceive that everything is interconnected and that everything is a different expression of the same one creation. So I think synchronicity is a marker and the acceleration of synchronicity is a marker of the expansion of consciousness no matter what triggers it. Because I think that I see synchronicity increasing in a number of people's lives, including my own, as you said, sometimes in in almost, you know, hysterically surreal and magical ways that are just almost beyond belief. Uh, Some of the synchronicities are just so profoundly bizarre. But um, I, I think that's a symptom of expansion of consciousness, no matter whether it's triggered by UFO experiences or whether it's triggered simply by, you know, yogic practices or uh, explorations of consciousness. Uh, I just think the willingness to move in that direction uh, results in, in more and more increased synchronicity in your life because you're just more harmoniously aligned with that level of perception. Um, you know, I, I agree, and it's it's because uh, I've been looking at it only from the UFO uh, abduction lore mm-hmm. and, and how it ties into that, and it seems to be almost universal that people who claim this close contact have the, uh, the heightened sense of synchronicity. And a very close friend of mine, when I tried to explain this to her, she sort of rolled her eyes and she kind of said, "Like, well, anyone on a spiritual journey will have increased synchronicity." Which sure, which is exactly. yeah, yeah. So you're you're I I agree, um, though I just still find it so illuminating and fascinating that uh, what it's giving me is confirmation in a way of what might be in those that blank spot on the puzzle that is still Mm -hmm. a mystery to me so i'm getting confirmation in the in the form of synchronicity yeah it's interesting about the blank spots that you're referring to because one of the things that bashar has actually been talking about lately uh which is very interesting is he said that many many people have actually had contact and they don't remember that they've had contact and the rate at which they actually begin to remember some of the experiences they've had is actually used as a barometer by Bashar and other extraterrestrial beings to be able to tell when we're ready for more conscious open contact. So many times the contacts are perhaps either on our part or on the ET's part, or on both of our parts, deliberately obscured, deliberately forgotten, so that they can use the rate at which we remember those events as a measuring device to be able to tell when we're integrated enough for more open contact in a conscious way. So I thought that was kind of a fascinating comment. And that's sort of my sense. Um, I I was actually told... uh, by a psychic during a psychic reading. Um, her name is Marissa Ryan. I believe she lives in California. I don't know if you're familiar with her at all. No. Um, but she uh, she told me that uh, I had chosen to come here in this life mm-hmm. 
and that I had chosen these experiences mm-hmm. and volunteered, but yes. that I had also chosen not mm-hmm. to remember in order to be um, to, to go through the role of searching and to go through the yes. uh, the the uh, I guess the journey of searching, exactly. and that I would be writing about this stuff mm-hmm. specifically to bring solace to people who are on the same path as me. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, to put it really simply, you know, there's no way to remember unless you forget. There's no way to have an experience that seems like a discovery unless you don't remember that you already know this. So it's a very typical thing for us to do when we choose to have lives in these kinds of physical realities to in, intentionally impose some forgetfulness because then the journey of discovery becomes unique. It becomes a unique way of rediscovering and remembering what our spirits may already know. But the unique journey adds to the overall experience of creation because this unique journey has never happened before. And so even though on one level all of that already exists, it's our journey and our experience of rediscovery uh, from a different perspective that that really expands creation uh, infinitely. How do you define the role of the shaman in our present-day society? As a guide, uh, in a sense, essentially, I think, to to uh, help people, uh, to guide people on, on ways that may work best for them to tap into whatever their belief systems are, whatever permission slips they're giving themselves to to help open them up to more of themselves. I, I think that's the basic function of a shaman or any form of guide whatsoever, is to really sort of reflect things to you that uh, help you discover or rediscover more of who you truly are as uh, a being at your core, your essence. And then I asked you that uh, specifically, do you see yourself as a shaman? No, I don't. Um, in see, some ways, do you see Bashar I, as a shaman? I would see him more as as a shaman. Uh, certainly, he's functioning as a guide and a mentor. Uh, and I understand that I'm dispensing information by doing the channelings, but I don't think of myself as a shaman. Um, you know, perhaps I'm functioning in some senses as a reflection or as an example of a of a state of being that other people can also choose to experience. Um, but I just feel like uh, I'm just really more than being a shaman. I just feel like I'm becoming more representative of being a full human. Um, here's a question I ask everyone who comes on the show, uh, and this is from my own personal experience. Um, what do you, how do you see the role of owls, whether they be an archetype or whether they be some sort of uh, messenger? I have had so many <clears throat> synchronistic experiences involving owls. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to laugh right now because that's one of the strongest symptoms of the abduction phenomenon. Um, many times it may be possible that you're actually seeing an owl. But from the research I've done, it may also be that a lot of times the perception of an owl may be what's termed a screen 
memory. Oh, oh, I'm very familiar with that, and and I have. Okay. I believe when I see an owl, that's like the one thing I grit okay. my teeth and I can go like, okay, this is a that is a real owl, and and I can I can I feel right. like the owl experiences that I have had, um, I feel quite confident saying that they are real owls, and and almost okay. every one of them has been in a great big crowd of people, and there's okay. no missing time event or anything. Okay. But believe but, me, I I have I have uh, I, yes. I have looked long and hard at exactly the okay. question. So. But the archetype, I think, is is pretty much what we generally hold the owl to be, and that is the concept of wisdom or the concept of seeing into other levels. And so even if they're actually physically owls, I think the, the experiences that you've had have triggered certain energies within you that synchronistically attract the archetype that represents that level of consciousness, that level of wisdom, that level of seeing, of penetrating into other realities. And so by constantly attracting that archetypal reflection, you're synchronistically reminded of what the vibrational level is that is your, in a sense, your your higher state, your natural state of being. Oh, that's, that's I mean, in, in, if I, how to say this, I, I, uh, I, as a child growing up, I would um, walk to and from school alone. And I remember, this is like the way I phrase it. It's like, you know, when walking to school alone, I, I had just a calm clarity on things. And I often think that um, that calm clarity that I just, uh, that I put in that framework, um, you know, I think a lot of tr- answers are within, held within that clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, in in essence, I didn't even really need to ask the owl question because that would have been the answer I would have given myself in right. in that um, you know walking home from school mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in those moments, I think you know everyone finds those moments of quiet solitude where they I think uh, from time to time do realize that they do have the answers or it's certainly they have access to the answers to their questions. Uh, Bashar kind of uses a, a cute analogy. Um, in one sense, he says, of course, you know, if you didn't actually know the answer, you probably would not have been able to conceive of the question to begin with. So all you really need to do to discover the answer is take that little bent over question mark and straighten it out into an exclamation point, And you'll realize the answer's there. And that is a cute little way of saying it, you know, and, and, and I think that, uh, you know, we as humans are, sh- are, are, I don't want to say shy, but, you know, they're, they're, we're that's difficult to do sometimes. It's difficult only because we have been taught to believe that such a thing is difficult. Uh, Bashar explains at length and quite extensively that our physical reality experience is wholly determined by what we believe to be true. And that when we get in touch with whatever it is we do believe and we start to alter the beliefs, then it is the alteration of our deepest beliefs that actually alters our experience of physical reality. Because from his perspective, physical reality doesn't really exist outside of us. It's only the product of what we choose to believe we're experiencing. Even if we do that by agreement with many people, it's still a collective belief. And when a person changes their beliefs, they actually do change their experience of physical reality. Um... Do you ever clash with Bashar, like as a, as personalities? <laughs> no. 
No. Okay, just wondering. Just wondering if you like if you would you know ever like sort of you know want to like put your hand up and say like wait a minute I disagree. So. No, I, I've usually found that even though some of the concepts he's bringing through, it, it may take me a while to to understand or absorb them, or they may seem confusing or contradictory or contrary at first. When I start investigating them deeply enough, I start to understand where he's coming from and and what he's really describing is the nature of the structure of existence itself. And once you understand on a very simple level the actual structure of existence, a lot of what he's talking about and a lot of what other entities talk about makes perfect logical sense. So I just it just sort of is starting to seem obvious to me. And I ask that because uh, you're, you must be familiar with Neil Donald Walsh. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so I, his first three books I thought were brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. They had a profound impact on my life. It was those books and a series of others were yes. were instrumental. Um, yeah, the I think Emanuel really, Speaks yeah. books I thought were actually so beautiful also. Um, mm-hmm. But that was the thing I really liked about his initial books was that he was uh, – I just he, his voice was very – quick to to jump in and say like now wait a minute you got to explain that again like sure he was having a dialogue but see i'm not actually having a dialogue i'm just letting him speak but when he speaks the concepts in a sense uh rub off on me so as he's speaking i'm in a sense being educated even though i don't hear the words when i channel the concepts sink into me and so i can i get to share the same perspective he actually has and the way that they see things and the way that they feel is profoundly different than the way we typically feel on a day-to-day basis and so since i actually get to understand things from his perspective directly by standing in the stream of his consciousness while he's channeling through me there really isn't the back and forth dialogue i'm not really coming from a a different place i'm actually being immersed in his perspective, and so I get it. Okay, good, good. Because I, I found that that, that dialogue for me um, was a very uh, effective way for me to, to step into this you know, oh, sure. the realm of the channeled uh, uh, material. Absolutely. There are many, many, many ways, uh, because there are many beliefs that this information needs to be delivered in order so that some particular way will work best for you, whereas another way will work best for someone else. As Bashar often says, if there was only one way, there would only be one person. Obviously, there's more than one person around. So there's a number of ways that work. Um, I have been, one of the things that I've been doing is I have been talking directly with people who claim the contact experience, Mm -hmm. um, the UFO abduction experience. Mm -hmm. And within that, uh, those people, some individuals have such a rich collection of experiences that Mm -hmm. it almost comes out as... Um, I mean, it's confusing for me to try to make sense of what they're saying, and Mm -hmm. I suspect it's confusing for them to try to articulate what's going on, Mm -hmm. and it certainly seems that that, uh, something is happening in a dimension or realm that is different than ours enough that that it scrambles up what would be, you know, my ability to, to look at this logically. In some ways, yes. I, I think that certain of those experiences do take place in a different, a slightly different dimensional plane out of phase with ours. And I think that our, our physical minds have difficulty interpreting or putting 
words to or symbols to some of the things that it, that get experienced in that other realm because there just aren't words for it. There there is no way to really describe it exactly. Uh, you see the same kind of thing happen with people who experience, uh, you know, have near death experiences when they when they claim, you know, that they go to the other side and then they come back. A lot of times they say, you know, I, I'm trying to describe what I experienced, but I, I can only get so close, but I can't actually find the words. And I think that's got to be true for anything that happens in an altered dimensional reality, because they're just, you know, we just don't really have the, the language to exactly express what goes on in a reality that allows you to experience something quite a bit different than what's capable of being experienced in this reality. Good. I'm just going to run down and, and just ask you a, th- a few things on the checklist here about the abduction phenomena. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people, I, I'm very familiar with the, all the claims of the hybrid mm-hmm. experiences mm-hmm. and the hybrid beings in a breeding mm-hmm. program. Is this literally physically happening or is this some sort of metaphor that we're, we're meant to, uh, to interpret? I believe it's both. Uh, because, again, as I said, Bashar is saying that his civilization is actually one of the results physically of that hybridization program. So uh, at the same time, there are definitely metaphorical uh, experiences, metaphorical information in there that has to do with, with understanding our own expansion of consciousness, our connection to those beings, our connection to the universe, the cosmos. Um, I, there's definitely reflections in there that that uh, go way beyond the physical act, but I do believe it is a physical act. There is actually the physical creation of hybrid beings uh, being undertaken for the purpose, at least as I understand it, of the perpetuation of their civilization, since it seems that the greys did something to themselves that prevented them from being able to replicate, and they needed viable DNA uh, from us in order to do so. Uh, Bashar has explained that the reason that this is possible is that what we think of as the greys are not actually alien beings. He has said they're really mutated humans from a parallel reality. And therefore, since they have done this to themselves and prevented themselves from being able to continue as a viable civilization, they needed a source of viable human DNA with which to create hybrids that could uh, allow their civilization to continue. And Bashar's civilization, as he has described it, is one of five different hybrid civilizations that are the direct result of that genetic program. Now, I hear you say that, and I can interpret that both ways. I can interpret it literally, and, mm-hmm. and then I can also interpret that <clears throat> metaphorically, where, you know, that would be the story that, um, you know, if I was the script writer of a mm-hmm. science fiction movie and I wanted to, you know, say, you know, me as the author am concerned about the road we're traveling, you know, sure. I, I would write that script as a metaphor for our mm-hmm. own uh, society right now. Absolutely, and I think this is why so many abductees also report that they actually do receive information from their experiences where they're given uh, visions of uh, environmental disasters and things like this and saying, look, we did this to ourselves. This is where you're headed if you don't change course. So yes, even though it still continues to sound very much like a science fiction story, I think it may be possible that in their reality, they already walked that path, and they know the consequences of those choices. And in some senses, they're trying to let us know that we're, we might be heading that way if we don't make other choices. 
Now, another thing that's often reported in the abduction lore is you know military experiences often referred to a military abduction or my lab experiences mm-hmm. yes this is something that i find i mean i hear these reports i've talked to people directly mm-hmm. um is this literally happening i believe there is validity to some of the reports i have no idea if they're all true uh, but I do believe from my own research and from some of the things that Bashar has said that there is some validity to those reports. Um, it, what about the, uh, I've also talked to folks that, that say that something is going on with what would be secret societies and the Illuminati is a very tidy catchphrase. And yeah. this is something that I'm also, you know, I hear these reports, I hear this line of speculation and <clears throat> there's a certain logic to it, but I'm, I'm quite baffled as to what the real meaning might be behind all this. Um, this is an area that Bashar actually does not go into very deeply, specifically because even though he acknowledges, certainly, as human beings, there are obviously people on this planet that are negatively oriented, that try to control and dominate things. And and certainly we do know that there are such things as conspiracies and, and people trying to, uh, you know, control, uh, you know, situations and, and re- retain power or what they think passes for power. Certainly those things do exist on our planet. Bashar does not go deeply into these things because he recognizes that sometimes a lot of people who who get deeply involved in investigating these things sort of succumb to the fear-based uh, energy, and he does not wish people to focus on that. Because from his perspective, <clears throat> even if someone else does have the negative intention of attempting to dominate other people, he says, if you maintain a particular vibration of a positive nature, of a state of being that is representative of a reality you prefer, then it doesn't matter what anyone else's intention is toward you. They will not be able to be in any way, shape, or form able to affect you in your life because, in a sense, your vibration will be so different than theirs that they will not be able to cross that divide in terms of affecting what it is that you need in your life. So he really kind of cautions people not to get too deeply involved in focusing or connecting to that because all it does is perpetuate the same fear-based energy and it reinforces the ideas that those people may be attempting to instill within you and in some senses uh, actually allow them more control by succumbing to the idea that that uh, these fear-based ideas exist. So that's sort of his take on that. He doesn't go deeply into it. Oh, so this is interesting. This is something you actually have addressed with him or has been addressed? Okay. Yes, and in fact, uh, recently he's actually said that even though he has discussed these things in the past with people in in various sessions, that because now the energy is accelerating, because it's... uh, you know, 2012 or what have you, whatever you want to call this threshold crossing of transformation, he said, um, you know, that will really not be a subject that he will discuss anymore because he he thinks it's more important at this point for people to focus on the idea that they have the power to create the realities in positive ways, regardless of what they may be viewing in other people. And he really would prefer at this point that people focus on the positive energy and creating a positive reality than getting all caught up in, in negative conspiracy theories which ultimately don't really serve them in positive ways. If, um, you know, what other areas does Bashar avoid or choose not to answer? Um, It's difficult to say because in some cases, you know, how do we know 
what he's not talking about. There may be things that he's simply not even mentioning that we have no idea of. Um, but recently, um, one of the other things he said will also no longer be coming through me would be um, health information, because he's delivered a lot of health information in the past. He feels that people have the information they need to access or that they can find it from other sources. He feels now with the way energy is accelerating, he needs to focus at this point because of the acceleration on very specific subjects that have to do with helping us understand exactly how we create our reality and what our consciousness is all about. And so at this point, not, you know, not for any negative reason, he's just saying, that's just really not my job anymore. Um, and so the channelings do change over time. The, the content of the information does change over time as we change based on what Bashar believes is the most important information we need in our lives at this point. Okay, um, so so that his focus now would be in in uh, elevating consciousness. Yes, I mean it always has been, but it's going to really take uh, much more specific uh, <clears throat> kinds of expressions. And I think that I'm beginning to get a sense that uh, one of the things he has not been able to discuss that probably in the uh, approaching times he will probably be more able to become uh, a little bit more in and vocal about. Uh, is our politics, especially with regard to the issue of disclosure. Um, so I'm, I'm getting the impression that as we transition into this, uh, <clears throat> you know, through this crossing this threshold into this new energy state, into this new day and age of more awareness, that the ETs will actually be able to become a little bit more involved directly in our social uh, conventions, in our political uh, ideas uh, guiding us a little bit more clearly in those areas as well, whereas before that they were really uh, holding off on that and had kind of a hands-off uh, kind of policy so that they wouldn't intervene or interfere too much in the decisions that we were able to make for ourselves. But I think that's changing now. And how do you see that happening? Is it, <clears throat> Would it be direct downloads to people of influence or would it be... Uh, that's possible, but I think it's also just about dialogue and discussion about what people can actually do uh, to um, uh, promote, you know, more open communication, have less secrecy in certain areas. So I, I just think whereas before they haven't really been willing to say anything at all, now I think they're actually going to start giving suggestions and guidance for what you know, how we can better create the kind of world we actually want and how we can have more open communication with regard to things that heretofore have been held in deep secrecy. And how does this all connect to 2012? <clears throat> he sees it as the sort of crossing of a threshold, the tipping of a scales. It's like he describes it as the sort of leading edge of our collective consciousness or the bow shock wave uh, that where it's almost like crossing the sound barrier. And um, he sees it as, whereas heretofore, before this time, the collective energy of the world may have been, <clears throat> just shall, shall we say, uh, the majority of it may have been negative, where after crossing this threshold, he says, we finally tipped the scales to where the majority, even maybe just a slight majority, but the majority of the collective energy of our planet will, for the first time in many thousands of years, be more positive than negative. And we can actually now build on that and accelerate on that and have a snowball effect of having things happen faster and faster and faster that are more integrative and cohesive and positive because we finally tip the scale uh, and have a little bit more momentum on the positive side than we've had for thousands of years. 
I'm reminded of some research uh, that was done on, you've, you know, the, the beautiful imagery of a big flock of birds and they're flying all in one direction mm-hmm. and then snap, they all as one singular unit fly in an opposite direction. Yes. Um, there's been some studies with uh, what amount to slow motion, like what is actually happening. Mm-hmm. And um, there is, it's in essence, the birds changing direction in flight is a microcosm of that, you know, hopeful analogy mm-hmm. you just gave mm-hmm. where uh, they're, you know, one bird will turn, another right. bird will turn, and then as they reach a tipping point, all of them will turn as if in unison. Right. Um, yeah, Bashar also sort of refers to this as the rubber band analogy, because he says, you know how on your planet you have rubber bands, and you know that the farther back you pull them, when you finally let them go, they'll snap that much faster and that much farther in the other direction. So <clears throat> the idea is that we've been exploring sort of, you know, limitation and negativity and darkness for so long. He said, you know, but the deeper that you have explored those things, the deeper into darkness and limitation you've gone, that means when you finally decide to truly let that go, you will snap that much faster and that much farther into the light. Um, I have sat in UFO support groups where we sit around in a circle and, mm-hmm. and it's like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and uh, people, <laughs> people share their experiences right. and some people have extremely dark, frightening experiences. They, is, yes. they the, you know, if you listen to them, they yes. are experiencing interactions with demons. Other people have uh, beautiful, wonderful, mm-hmm. glorious, uh, transcendent experiences. And mm-hmm. if you were to interpret that, it sounds like they are interacting with angels. Mm-hmm. Why is there this, this dichotomy? I think, so there may be exceptions, I think for the most part, what people are experiencing is the result of their own belief systems in terms of how they have that emotional reaction to what they're going through. Now, I understand that people have reported that if they're interacting with beings such as the greys, for example, that the greys may not necessarily be capable of really relating to our emotions. They may have, in a sense, bred emotionality out of themselves to the point where they don't understand the reaction we have to them. And so in some senses, they may seem a little bit detached or callous. And uh, and doing what they're doing may not seem like a big deal to them, but obviously it seems like a very big deal to us. But I think for the most part, uh, and this is sort of based on something that Bashar has explained, is that when we come in contact with what we would classically call the other, a different vibration entirely, an alien frequency. That alien frequency has a tendency to sort of push things in our psyche to the surface that we may not be ready to face about ourselves. Uh, Buried fears, self-doubts, issues of lack of self-worth may suddenly be forced into the surface of our consciousness before we're ready to integrate them. And this can actually cause a fear, fight, or flight survival reaction in us, even if nothing is actually being done to us to harm us. So I think that in a lot of cases, again, maybe not all, but in a lot of cases, that great fearful reaction is simply feeling our own fears that are being forced to the surface 
by being in proximity to something so alien and so different that we're just simply have no way of, of integrating. <clears throat> um, I had an experience. I've had, the, there was only one, well, I guess I've had two. I've had two experiences where I felt like absolutely soul crushing fear. And one of them was in a tent and I was with someone who had also um, had a lifetime of odd life events similar to mine. Um, and the, this was followed up by, you know, memories of me being on a table and, and, uh, you know, floating yes. through the top of the tent. And, but the initial experience was, uh, there was about two or three minutes where both of us were wide awake and I have never experienced anything like that. It felt like, yeah. like, uh, you know, the, 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 my soul was going to be squashed out under the foot <laughs> yes. of, of a, some unimaginable reality. Yeah, I, I, I do believe that in the majority of these experiences, uh, there is actually no harm intended to the, to the humans that are involved in this. But I, I do think that, as I said, uh, you know, our psyche has been so preconditioned uh, to look at, at reality in such a limited way that when we're suddenly faced with the absolutely undeniable presence of something that is beyond our understanding, that one of our typical reactions is simply to go completely into that survival fear mode. And it just, uh, you know, it just courses through us like a wildfire. And it's very difficult for us to, to stop that, that sensation. But I think that over time, people I've heard uh, have gotten sort of, in a sense, used to the experiences more and more. They begin to understand that they are part of the agenda, that they've chosen this. And regardless of what the physical mind may remember about that agreement, the higher mind does agree, does remember this agreement, and that in time, the, the physical mind will also realize that, that this is uh, part and parcel of a choice that's been made that is serving the greater good on a lot of different levels, I think both for that species and our species in a number of ways. And I find that the more people get in touch with that and the more they bring love into those experiences, uh, both love of themselves and love of the others, uh, that the experiences then tend to change uh, their nature, change how they're experienced into something more positive. So I, I think a lot of it has to do with our own self-integration, uh, and it's an opportunity for us to face our fears and integrate them and become something greater that is actually more reflective of, of what the entire uh, picture is all about. Now, that answer you just gave, was that coming from, from you, Daryl, or was that coming from you having... Uh listened and integrated what Bashar has taught? Uh, it's coming from both, because it's coming from what Bashar has taught, and it's also coming from my own research in speaking with people that have had those experiences over time and seeing how it's changed for them. Um, there's When I talk to folks that claim the experience, sometimes they'll say, like, oh, I'm interacting with the Pleiadians, or I'm interacting mm -hmm. with the Arcturians, and, mm -hmm. or the Syrians, and, and uh, it, it you know, I look in the night sky and I can pick out all those stars. Um, is this a reality? If Are the Pleiadians really from the Pleiades, or is this a kind of metaphor? 
No, I do believe that in some of these cases, they this is representative of actual contact. But I also understand that in some cases, or maybe in most cases, a lot of those kinds of contacts take place in a completely different dimension. And so can have those sort of surreal metaphorical qualities to them that seem dreamlike. Uh, they may not be taking place in our physical reality. They may be happening on a on sort of a quasi-physical plane or a higher dimensional plane that seems very unreal to us. <clears throat> so I do think some of those experiences are actually happening, but I think they're happening in a way uh, and in a place and on a level that's very hard to pin down as actually happening in our physical reality. Does that make sense? Sure. You know, the thing that I struggle with is, is the people that say they're interacting with the Pleiadians. And I have this, mm-hmm. this image of these, you know, Nordic blonde, sure. beautiful, you know, and, and I suspect <clears throat> that if I got a really, really strong telescope and pointed it up at the Pleiadian, you know, that the Pleiadian mm-hmm. star system, that I wouldn't be able to see nice, beautiful blonde people on a planet waving back at me. Well, I don't, I don't, yes, I don't know. I mean, Bashar has talked about the fact that obviously in their reality, I mean, they are, they do have a physicality, but he said that they also exist in a slightly altered parallel reality. So even though he said their, their star system is about 500 light years in the direction of the Orion constellation, we can't see their star unless we actually shift into their particular parallel reality, which to them is every bit as physical as ours is to us. Good, good. Okay, that's a great answer. Hey, um, I uh, had a synchronicity while looking through, uh, trying to research, you know, what, one of the things I did to research you was just get on uh, YouTube and just scroll mm-hmm. through some some uh, videos. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them, I was like kind of looking at the big long list, and it said Bashar, hybrid children. And this is something that's always fascinated me. And part of the reason is because I have no direct evidence of this, but I have been told by psychics and that I have uh, children, off-planet children, which I have absolutely no evidence of, and it doesn't ring true on any sort of deep level. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that, as far as a synchronicity, Mm -hmm. and other people report this too, is that a certain set of numbers seem to follow me around. And that would be, for me, would be 1, 2, 3, Mm -hmm. 1, 2, 3, 4, or Mm -hmm. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Um, Mm -hmm. And I see these connected synchronistically with... There's a lot of people that have reported, and I I have them too, I have numerical synchronicities. Uh, They may mean many different kinds of things. I personally just use them as kind of a marker to let me know that I'm I'm still in alignment with my own synchronicity, with my own preferred vibration. But I get the number 1010 all the time. I was born at 1010 at night. I see 1010 all over the place, you know, in, in a variety of ways that are unusual and stand out for me. But I just use that as a road mark. Because every time I see it, I know, okay, I'm, I'm in alignment with, with my preferred vibration, and therefore I'm getting a synchronistic reflection of that. So, so here's so this, the, one of the videos is Bashar says hybrid children, mm-hmm. and this is something that I you know, don't have a good mm-hmm. answer to. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, viewer count, the number of people who have seen it, is 1203, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of that's like one, two, that was when I looked at it. So I did a little screen grab of it and then sure. said, huh, well, let's. And then, you know, I said, oh, I can dismiss this, mm-hmm. right? This is not a real synchronicity. It's, yeah, it's up to you. It, it really is because synchronicities are a personal thing. You, you do put your own meaning into them, but they do reflect 
what your consciousness to some degree might be focused on. So a synchronicity doesn't necessarily have to represent something that's actually happened, but it can represent something that your mind is focused on a lot. And, and okay, that's a great answer because that, that actually, uh, you know, puts me in the driver's seat a little, a little more rather than me just at the whim of the, of the crashing waves of reality, you know, slamming against me. And yeah. one of the things that also was when I, uh, this, this, uh, little YouTube video was uploaded on August 22nd, which is my birthday. So oh, that was one of okay. those things that I just like, right. know, I, 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 my, the advice I give to people about mm-hmm. synchronicities is simply to pay attention. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you know, to me, you know, anything that you really need to know in life, if you just keep living your life, you'll find out what you need to know. So it's not like you have to rush it. It's not like you have to push it. It's not like you have to force the information. If there's truly something there for you that you need to know, something's going to happen in your life synchronistically that will allow you to know what the information is that you need to know. So, yeah, I look at those things and I pay attention to them and I use them in certain ways. But, you know, I don't try to read too much into them. I don't try to obsess about them or focus on them because I know that if it is representative of something I need to be aware of, as has always happened in my life, something is going to arrange itself. Some part of my consciousness, my higher mind is going to arrange events to put me squarely in touch with whatever information is really important for me to know. So I don't ever worry that I'm going to miss anything. Bashar talks about the fact that, you know, we make these kinds of appointments for ourselves and there's really no way to miss those kinds of appointments, except if we spend time obsessing and worrying that we're going to miss those appointments. That's the only way to miss the appointment. So if we just keep living our lives, keep acting on our passion, keep being who we wish to be, uh, then, you know, any appointment we made is going to happen at exactly the right place and exactly the right time, and we won't miss it. I feel like I, I don't want to say made the mistake, but I, I, uh, initially when I was getting hit with some of these synchronicities, they threw me for such a profound loop mm-hmm. that, uh, that I did obsess about them, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm much more at peace with it now than I would have been, I guess it was really around 2006 that things mm-hmm. really started to, to come on right. fast and furious with me. But, uh, and, and now, um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I still, what I've done is I've made a very real effort to document the synchronicities in a mm-hmm. blog format. And I think there's, there's, there's a sort of resonant power in putting these things out there in such a, in such a, uh, Oh, sure. They're fascinating. Yeah. And they're, they're a really good demonstration to people. And, and you, you, you know, you read a lot of those synchronous stories over and over again. I think they're a very good demonstration to people that, you know, we do in a sense, uh, attract what we're focused on. And, and that's how the law of attraction works. And that's how we create our reality experiences. And it's our, you know, it's whatever our strongest belief and focus is that generates what it is we keep experiencing in our lives. And so we can use that reflectively in a number of ways. Great. Um, hey, we've been going at it for, it looks like an hour and 20 yeah. minutes here. So how are you holding up? I'm doing okay. I, I do actually need to kind of go off and do some things because I'm, you know, my, my other, the other side of my life is that I'm actually in the, in the film business and we're just at the point where we're in post-production on, on uh, our first film as a production company. So I'm, oh, good. Uh, Here, t- talk about the film you're working on. 
Uh, this is uh, from my own production company. It doesn't really have anything directly to do with Bashar, although uh, Bashar Communications and I will be in the future also working on a, a documentary about Bashar and how I became a channel. But the, uh, the film that we are in post-production on now is a metaphysical film. It's called Dearly Departed, and it is a fictional documentary shot as if we were able to take a camera into the spirit world and talk to the spirits of people that have passed on to get their take on life after death. It's sort of based loosely on reports of near-death experiences, but we didn't want to just do a dry documentary on that information. We found it fascinating, but we wanted to do something unique with it. So we kind of were musing around one day and said, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could just take a camera into the spirit world and talk to spirits and find out what the afterlife is like? And so we said, well, you know, why don't we just shoot it that way as if we did? And that way we get to have a little bit more <clears throat> of a, you know, relatable characters and emotionality in it. And we get some humor in it. We get some seriousness in it. And we cover the gamut of all sorts of ideas of not only what the afterlife might be like, but also to get people to sort of focus on their lives while they're still physical and make whatever changes they wish to make in their lives, you know, before it's too late. So um, we're about a month away from finishing this film. Then we'll be starting to talk to distributors. And ideally, we'll be able to get it out into theaters and um, see what kind of response we get. But hopefully it will uh, go a long way toward uh, giving some people not only some insight about maybe the afterlife and what things may be like, but also perhaps give them some peace of mind and some comfort because there are a, a lot of people, of course, that have lost loved ones. And to let them know that perhaps, you know, we're never truly gone, that life goes on, even if it goes on in a different form. And did did uh, Bashar consult? Did you consult <clears throat> Bashar in this process? No, not directly. I've just used what I've learned from Bashar to be more of myself, to use my own intuitive skills and, and creative skills to create something, because that's really what Bashar is telling everyone, is, you know, you have the ability, you have the power, you have the uh, talent to access whatever you need. You know, we don't always have to go running to him or beings like him. And he wants us to act on our highest passion because that vibration is really representative of who we are at, at our, you know, in our core. And so I'm, I'm, you know, by making these movies, I'm basically following his advice, but uh, he doesn't really directly intervene in, in that creative process. He wants me and, and others to know that they have the ability to do those things um, on their own. And that's what empowers them. And I assume in your years of doing this, you've probably come across mediums that do uh, talk directly with uh, yes. uh, spirits. And I suspect you've gained some insight from that. Yes, absolutely. I actually did have a, a, a really good um, encounter with uh, James Van Prague, uh, who uh, uh, was very uh, accurate in terms of some of the information that he passed along to my wife and I about our parents, which he could not have known because we told him nothing. I don't even think we told him our last names. And uh, he picked up on several very specific things. Um, that I had actually even had dreams about <clears throat> with regard to my mother and father who had crossed over um, and picked up on them very accurately. Um, and uh, so, yes, there, there are definitely people who have that particular skill, um, you know, who, who do a valuable service, I think. And I hope that this film will sort of perform uh, a similar function for people. 
Um, I was first introduced to you through the illustrations you did in Kim Carlsberg's book, um, Beyond My Wildest Dreams. <clears throat> yes. And I have to ask you, were those done in Magic Marker? <laughs> Some of them, uh, yes, I think a lot of them were done, but they were actually done in, in a lot of different mediums. Um, some were done in acrylic paint, some were done in markers, some were done in pen and ink, uh, and a variety of, of things were used. Okay, I, and the reason I ask is because I'm a professional illustrator, and, uh, and I did, uh, when I was working would have been in the 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. I was working a lot in advertising, and I did a lot of magic marker work, and I was... Right, so I, you recognize oh, I that. Recognize yeah. So that was very... I was like, ooh, I, I see where he's coming from. So <laughs> uh, so I had to ask. That was one of the questions. Yes. That oh, was yeah, absolutely. Because really, I mean, I that's mostly what I've done in the film industry for many years was I did you know miniatures, and I did uh, designs for storyboards and sets and things like that, and I would use magic markers all the time. Yeah, as, as did I. Yeah, so... Um, Great. Hey, this has been delightful. Now, it has. Uh, I um, would like to put the request out, and you, you, mm-hmm. I would, and uh, at some point, I would love to do a, um, if if it works out, uh, some sort of session where I could connect with Bashar himself, in in the same format where I where- don't channel over the wire. I don't channel over the phone. I don't channel in this way. The channelings have to be in person. Just just the way I do it. Oh, okay. So, oh, fair enough. That I actually respect that greatly because, um, so, uh, you know, because I would, I was, there are questions that um, the listenership would have uh, as far as, um, you know, the people that, that are, I mm-hmm. feel that are in the same uh, same boat I am or a, on the same path that I am. Certainly. So, well, and, I mean, and another way to do that is to also simply gather some of those questions, some of which I can probably answer on my own. And some of and which some, I asked and, uh, during this interview. Right, and some of which we can probably ask Bashar at a different event, because we do sometimes do that. We have people uh, email questions or phone in questions, and then we, we compile those questions. And from time to time, in some certain public events or even private sessions, we actually then go down that list of questions uh, to get them answered and, and put those out either in the public sessions or, or on special CDs that are specifically about answering questions that people don't have a chance to ask in person. Great. Great. Hey, this has been wonderful. It has been great. Thank you, Mike. I really appreciate it uh, very much. It's been fun. Yes. And, and, and uh, as far as the channeled voices that I have been researching and listening to and studying and reading, um, mm-hmm. I feel like uh, you or you, let's say Bashar, the, the, mm-hmm. your channeled voice, is one of the good ones. I feel like there's been some well, profound you. lessons that I've, that I've uh, taken away from that. And, and, uh, and I will do... What I plan to do is link some uh, YouTube videos right on the uh, show notes when I when I post this, so that okay. people can click on that and then and then from there do some of their own research. Yeah, so. and please, by all means, uh, ask them also to visit the Bashar.org website where they will see uh, all of the recordings that we've got, and many DVDs and CDs are available there as well. And if uh, they're willing to help support us that way, then it will help us get more and more Bashar information out to people in a variety of ways. Great. Well, have a wonderful afternoon. I will do that, and you will do the same, I hope, too. Good. And I will, um, less than a week from now, I will see Kim Carlsberg at a UFO conference in Arizona. Oh, in Arizona. That's right. Well, please give her my best, and um, I will talk to you in the future. Thank you so much. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye.